Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Great show today. I have Richard Gowan of New York University on the line. He is a UN expert. I am something of a UN expert, and we have a great conversation about the events and ideas and things that are going to drive the agenda at the United Nations in 2015. You can probably guess some of these, but others may come as a surprise. Either way, it's a pretty interesting conversation, and I always learn something from speaking with Richard. Quick programming note, we now have a standalone app for the Global Dispatches podcast. You can listen to the podcast directly on your phone via this app. Uh, It's available for iPhone, Android, tablet, I think pretty soon Windows as well, Windows phones for the three of you out there who use Windows phones. You can find links to download the apps via globaldispatchespodcast.com or just search for Global Dispatches in Google Play or the App Store. So very exciting. You don't have to mess with iTunes, though, of course, we still are available on iTunes, on Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Okay, so here it is, my conversation with Richard Gowen, the research director at the Center for International Cooperation at New York University, about the things that are going to drive the agenda at the United Nations in 2015. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So, Richard, we have not really plotted this out ahead of time, which I think is fun because uh, we'll you know keep each other on our toes. So I'll hand it off to you first. What idea, issue, trend do you think will be on the uh, minds of members of the United Nations and will drive the agenda at the UN in 2015? I think it's going to be a very strange year at the UN because some policy processes are going rather well. I think that despite lots of flaws and argument discussions of the post-2015 development agenda are going better than expected. I think that we can be fairly optimistic about a deal on climate change. On the other hand, in geopolitical terms, the UN is in an awful mess. The Syrian crisis continues to horrifically embarrass the organization. Russia remains the spoiler in the Security Council. UN peacekeeping operations in places like Mali are under a lot of stress. And so the UN enters the year in a, in, in, a, in a strange shape because we can be hopeful that some policy processes are really going to move forward, but we should also be fearful that security shocks are going to undermine the organization. 
Um, so one of those policy processes that are going to go forward that um, will not, I think, make huge headlines here in the United States, but will have profound consequences around the world, at least as you know, life is experienced by most of the 7 billion people on our planet, is the creation of the Sustainable Development Goals. So at the end of this year, the Millennium Development Goals are going to expire, uh, and they will be replaced by something being called the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, and from now until the UN Summit in September delegates at the UN have the pretty tough job of going through and negotiating what precisely these are. Um, right now, the working draft is something like 17 goals and 169 sub-targets. Uh, you know, and some of these are pretty audacious, like the, the top goal, which will probably make it through the final draft, is to totally eradicate poverty, uh, extreme poverty, as defined by people who live on less than $1.25 a day by 2030. Um, that's a you know a huge and audacious but probably achievable target if present trends continue. Um, but what's interesting about the SDGs as they're being called as opposed to the MDGs is that they place um, some responsibilities on the developed world as well. Rich countries have obligations embedded in the SDGs as they're, as they're currently drafted, which they didn't have in the MDGs. One good example of this, again, is on the, this poverty reduction level. Um, so the top line goal is to eradicate extreme poverty by 2030 uh, globally, but there's like a sub goal that says uh, national poverty levels as defined by whatever, your, your, however your country defines it, need to be reduced by 50% by 2030 as well. So that places responsibility on, on you know, countries like the United States. So I'm wondering, how do you see this process of creating the SDGs play out over the, the course of the year? I think there's going to be a lot of contention. I think the, the mere fact that the current draft of the SDGs does include targets for developed countries shows how the nature of negotiations at the UN is changing. In the past, it was big donor countries like the U.S. and Britain that really set the agenda on the MDGs. In the last year or so, we've seen a very different dynamic uh, in U.N. negotiations with non-Western countries, uh, rising economies like Brazil and India, really setting a much greater part of the agenda than before and putting pressure on uh, the Europeans and putting pressure on the U.S. Now, that has made negotiations more difficult, but obviously it makes them more legitimate from a global perspective. Uh, but we do expect um, some big fights before the SDGs are finalized. Uh, there is a dispute looming over the, the governance of development and the governance of international financial institutions like the IMF. And there's a fight looming over whether the SDGs should contain references to security issues, to limiting conflict, because Western countries actually want the SDGs to include uh, clauses on conflict, but some non-Western countries like India are very suspicious of this and think that actually it's the West looking for backdoor ways to intervene in, in former colonies. So lots and lots of fights on the horizon. I think a lot of people really feel that the sheer number of goals is a little bit absurd. 169 is, is uh, an amazing number of targets and probably too much. But given the complex negotiating environment, it's not a, it's not a bad deal. And I think that it will present a, a sort of a banner issue for the UN going, going forward um, 
for the next decade or two. Uh, and so do you think uh, by the UN summit in September, heads of state will be uh, ready to sign this document? Yes. I, I, I think that it's pretty pretty certain that they will be. Now, I, diplomats have said that they also expect uh, the last couple of weeks to be absolute hell. They're sure that things that seem to be set in the current text will suddenly come up for negotiation again. That's how all UN summits work. But... I would be extremely surprised if leaders were not able to come to some sort of agreement in September, because that would be a, a real embarrassment for them. Uh, so, Richard, do you want to pick another issue that you think will will drive the agenda at the UN in 2015? Anything specific? I think that the Syrian crisis is going to continue to really dominate Security Council discussions and uh, affect the way the UN is seen as a as an actor in in collective security affairs. And as I said at the outset, I think that even if there's good news about climate change, even if there's good news about uh, development, the sheer flood of bad news from the Middle East is going to continue to corrode the UN's credibility in the eyes of many. The big question is. Could this be the year that Western countries and Russia, despite not really trusting each other, still find some way out of the Syrian crisis and agree on some sort of ceasefire? You know, a year ago, we were so close to that, right? A year ago, like this month, was when the Geneva talks happened uh, between uh, between, uh, Syrian opposition and and the government, but those totally floundered. Um, I just—it doesn't seem like there's any political solution on the horizon whatsoever. Although you're probably paying attention to this, what seems what the UN, from a political standpoint, seems to be focusing on. And by the UN, I mean like the UN uh, Secretariat, you know, staffers of the United Nations uh, uh, Secretariat, the Secretary General, are trying to impose or implement or negotiate like localized ceasefires um, around specific cities, just for purely humanitarian purposes. Uh, have you been following that at all? And, and do you think that that provides one potential you know, way out of this mess? I think that the UN was very badly burnt by the Geneva failure one year ago. I think that the, the UN approach now is really to try and build up some credibility very gradually uh, at the grassroots through organizing local ceasefires, both for humanitarian reasons, but also because that is a, a low-key way to get back into the game politically after the, the blowout in Geneva a year ago. And I think that's the right approach. There's been a lot of criticism uh, from uh, many angles uh, of this approach, but frankly, the UN doesn't really have very many other options, uh, or at least the Secretary General and uh, his, his team um, have very few other options. The, the bigger question is whether the main states in the Security Council can really change the terms of the game. Uh, And I don't completely rule out the possibility that in the context of broader detente between uh, Russia and the West over Ukraine, that there might, I think there might be some openings for uh, some deals around Syria. I think that Western countries are pretty resigned to Assad's uh, survival at this point in time. And I think that the existence of ISIS, the explosion of ISIS, 
which wasn't really a, a major factor a year ago, um, is also affecting diplomacy and also pushing people to look for compromises that they might have avoid, avoided before. You know, from a, uh, a UN perspective, not necessarily a Security Council perspective, but from a humanitarian perspective, the consequences of this Syrian war seems to be, you know, has had profound consequences across the world and in, in the ability of humanitarian organizations like UNICEF and the UN Refugee Agency to um, just conduct their day-to-day operations. So at the end of the year, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs issued its largest appeal ever, $16.4 billion, to take care of like you know all the people that were displaced all around the world in some sort of crisis situation all around the world. Over half of that appeal comes from Syria, something like over $8 billion uh, the the UN and other humanitarian agencies need to deal specifically with the Syrian crisis. And we've already seen over the course of the last year that they're having a lot of trouble raising that money. Um, In December of last year, in December 2014, the World Food Program, for example, like just ran out of money for... uh, food for Syrian refugees. So they had to resort to crowdfunding. So I think what we're going to see, one, I think, recurring theme, recurring issue we're going to see over the course of 2015 will be the inability of humanitarian agencies to provide you know, their full uh, complement of humanitarian services to everyone everywhere because of the just huge and, and draining um, effect of the Syrian crisis. I think that's absolutely right, and there are so many crises which really should be high on the agenda that are getting very short shrift at the moment. Syria, as you say, is dominating uh, the headlines, and it's always possible to find money for Iraq. But if you think of the Central African Republic, if you think of South Sudan, if you think of Somalia, those countries all need immense amounts of help, and the money often just is not there. Similarly, I think I'm very concerned that as Ebola passes from the headlines and as the worst of the Ebola crisis passes in West Africa, donors are going to look away from Sierra Leone and Liberia and and Guinea very quickly, and we won't have sufficient funds to support the reconstruction and restabilization of, of both societies uh, as the disease um, passes on. So it is a, it is a desperately difficult time uh, for the for the UN to find the cash it needs, uh, even for some of its most basic work. And again, this you know I think you have to sort of put this alongside all the fine talk about the SDGs and ask if we're really so serious about wiping out poverty by 2030. Uh, why are we not serious about um, feeding Syrians in, in Lebanon and Jordan? There's a there's a real disconnect there, and it you know tells us some rather sad things about the state of the international community. Right. I mean, 16.4 billion dollars is a lot of money, but from a budgetary perspective, spread across all donor countries, it's really not. Uh, and that money could be found if there was political will to to find it. I think your point on a bull. I, I was I was yeah. struck. I was struck. There was a story in the in the Financial Times at the weekend that the EU has put aside over a billion euros to promote European wine abroad. And if we can find a billion euros to promote Bordeaux and Claret and so on, then I think we should be able to find the money to um, feed starving people. Uh, I, I I agree, and I don't think French wine needs much promoting, to be honest. Um, 
So uh, uh, on on Ebola, I think you made a very important point, um, which is that you know I think we can expect in 2015 that Ebola to fade from the headlines, particularly as incidence declines, as as the trend lines seem to indicate is happening at least in in Liberia, but also seemingly now in in Sierra Leone as well. Um, and as that ha- you know one consequence of Ebola, as you alluded to, was wiping out already fragile healthcare systems. You know. Ebola killed a disproportionately high number of doctors and nurses in countries that didn't have a lot of doctors and nurses to start with. Um, and so the extent to which the international community will is willing to invest in rebuilding healthcare systems of these countries and rebuilding them stronger, I think will be a key measure as to whether or not Real, there are any like big long lasting lessons can be drawn from from the outbreak of this infectious disease. I think that's true. I think the only bright spot there is that the three countries most seriously affected all still have close ties with um, Western donors. So I don't think the U.S. will let Liberia languish too long. I think that the U.K. will lead on supporting uh, Sierra Leone uh, just as 15 years ago, the the UK sent troops to Sierra Leone uh, during the Civil War. Uh, Guinea is an interesting point because that's where the French have been taking the lead. And the French simply do not have uh, the money, I think, to help rebuild uh, the system in Guinea. So there is a risk that that will be the forgotten case. On the other hand, Guinea seems, you know, to a layperson's eye, to be the one of the three countries that has actually suffered least systemically uh, to date. Um, so one other issue that's already come before the Security Council, even so early in the year, is this question of, of the Palestinian statehood bid. Um, and so basically, uh, at the end of last year, um, at on like, I think December 30th was the date, uh, the Palestinians, backed by Arab members of the Security Council, put forward a resolution basically imposing the two-state solution in two years' time. Uh, this was a resolution that the U.S. strenuously uh, opposed. Um, but, you know, in these situations, I think the USA and other countries generally like to avoid having to cast a veto. Um, and one way to avoid having to cast a veto is to um, prevent nine members of the Security Council from voting affirmatively in favor of a resolution. So if a resolution doesn't get nine yay votes, it uh, fails and no country has to no veto would be invoked. So at the end of last year, there were a sufficient number of nay votes and abstentions to block this Palestinian proposal. But the Palestinians, uh, backed by Arab members of the Security Council, have vowed to uh, reintroduce this uh, resolution in the coming year. Uh, And now the Security Council makeup is a bit different and the math looks a little more difficult for the United States to avoid having to cast a, a veto. What uh, effect do you see of this resolution, of this bid by the Palestinians having any you know, consequence on relations at the Security Council or the work of the UN more broadly? I think the sad truth is that even if the Palestinians and their allies were able to get a version of this resolution onto the agenda every single year, it would... Ultimately, it would be blocked by the U.S., um, and I don't think that it would really advance the Palestinian 
cause a great deal. It would simply cause uh, a lot of heartache um, each year. On the more positive side, I think that even if Security Council debates over Palestine become nastier and nastier, it, it doesn't really affect the way the Council deals with other issues. Palestine is such a poisonous issue at the UN that all sides sort of agree to disagree about it, whether it's in the Security Council, whether it's in the General Assembly, whether it's in the Human Rights Council. And they don't really let those disagreements spill over into their discussions of other crises in the Middle East, let alone other crises in Africa. So this is really a piece of political theatre. It's embarrassing for the US. It's embarrassing also for the Europeans because we saw the EU members of the council were unable to come to a common position last month. But it's, re- it's really theatre. It's, it's sadly not, I think, going to, to drive diplomacy uh, very far forward. Um, so in our last few minutes, uh, is there another issue, idea, or trend that you think we should keep our eyes out in 2015? I think the climate change negotiations, which will culminate in, in Paris, are in some ways an even bigger test for the UN system than the development negotiations. And I think that for five years, um, multilateral diplomacy has been tainted with recollections of that really disastrous uh, conference in Copenhagen in 2009 where the leaders of the world gathered together and screwed up and failed to come to any meaningful agreement. I've often found talking to diplomats and foreign policy analysts that if you make a case for multilateral engagement in in almost any policy field, they say, yes, but remember Copenhagen. Copenhagen showed that it's no longer possible to get serious global action around difficult issues. If, as seems likely, it is possible to get a real deal on climate change this year, although a much weaker deal than most of us would like, I think that that will sort of be a bit of a multilateral reset moment. I think that it will erase memories of Copenhagen. It will increase international trust in the multilateral system. And if it, if it works, if it actually is a deal that people look at and say is good enough, then that's going to be a, a, a really seminally important moment for the UN, more important than the post-2015 agenda, more important than immediate crises like those in South Sudan or, or Yemen or wherever. What's interesting, so if uh, th- this uh, uh, an ambitious deal is signed, I wonder if this may, th- the deal may end up being sort of a multilateral dressing on what are essentially bilateral climate change agreements between the U.S. and other countries. So you had the U.S. and, and China uh, have their sort of bilateral you know, climate change agreement. Later this month, Barack Obama is going to India. Uh, and I wonder, I suspect, uh, since, uh, you know, his Barack Obama's trip is coming a week after uh, Ban Ki-moon's own trip to India, if there might be some sort of similar announcement on the climate change front between uh, India and the U.S. If we see that, if, if we see that sort of U.S.-India uh, agreement along the same lines that we saw the U.S.-China agreement, um, you know, you wonder if this Paris agreement will merely be like a collection of these kind of bilateral agreements uh, just kind of put under a multilateral you know, headline or, or package? 
I think that's absolutely right, and I think that this is probably the way that most really large-scale multilateral deals are going to look from now on. I think that we've entered an era where um, it's not possible to get really centralized uh, multilateral agreements. Uh, instead, the art of multilateral diplomacy is going to be about linking up multiple, multiple mini-agreements between Delhi and Beijing and uh, Washington and so forth. Um, but again, if it is possible to get Delhi to sign up to that, if it is possible to make Beijing to stick to its commitment on that basis, uh, that is um, complicated in diplomatic terms, but um, I think a hopeful sign in strategic multilateral terms. Uh, Richard, as always, pleasure to learn from you and to speak with you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your insights with me today. I, I appreciate it. This was fun. And, 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 and vice versa. Excellent. So there you have your 2015 agenda set out for you. Um, thanks all for listening. Uh, and again, check out the app. If you like the app, please let me know. If you have any issues with it, also let me know. Uh, love to hear your feedback. Also, I got a pretty incredible tweet from Lee Crawford, a listener who says that rather improbably, he listens to this podcast while training for a marathon. So Lee, if you're listening to this right now, run faster. Bye. Bye.